0: The Heretic's Forfeit, a tale of jealousy, murder, and revenge, written and performed by Paul Francis Matthews, Episode 2. When Christopher Marlowe told William Shakespeare that Arcadia, the establishment for gentlemen of refinement, was in Clapham, Clapham wasn't an endorsement. It was a warning. In order to get to Arcadia, Shakespeare had to cross the river, then Wendy's way southwest, all the way down to where the borough of Lambeth abuts the borough of Wandsworth. And all the while, during this epic sojourn into the wilder reaches of Surrey, the night was closing in. Then came the truly dangerous part. Arcadia was situated at the far end of Clapham, common and when night fell a werewolf yes really a werewolf was said to prowl there ready to pounce upon and then tear to pieces and consume any unsuspecting person foolish enough to venture that way luckily for Shakespeare he was completely oblivious to the hair-raising legend of the beast of Clapham common and therefore marched across it with an air of insouciance that not even the rapidly encroaching darkness could dampen he actually whistled Arcadia, the establishment for gentlemen of refinement, was rammed to its Tudor rafters. And yet, for an establishment for gentlemen of refinement, there seemed to be an awful lot of women. Maybe it was ladies night. It was a very large building with the main hall brilliantly illuminated by eight enormous dark metal candle chandeliers. The porter, who hadn't said a word, not that he would have been heard, the music was so loud, guided Shakespeare across the heaving dance floor to a door that led to the VIP area. There weren't so many. People, the lighting was subdued, and in the corner there sat a ringleted moor, gently strumming that annoyingly ubiquitous popular song, Greensleeves, on one of those newfangled Spanish imports, Una guitarra. Shakespeare, over here! It was Marlowe. He was sitting with his cronies at a table down the far end of the room. Once Shakespeare had walked over, made his aloes, and sat himself down, Marlowe clicked his fingers in the direction of the waiter. Boy, bring another glass and three more bottles of reddish. The waiter hurried away to get Marlowe's order. Marlowe turned to Shakespeare. Well, 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 Master Shakespeare, you've made it here, and apparently all of one piece. The wolfman's hunger must have been already assuaged this night. Or perhaps he reckoned there was insufficient meat on your bones. Marlowe and his cohorts laughed heartily, as did Shakespeare, though a trifle, half-heartedly, because he didn't know what the dickens Marlowe was on about. The wolfman, it must have been some kind of private joke, So tell me, Shakespeare, what is your opinion of Arcadia? Is it to your liking? It's very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Shakespeare began to have the sinking feeling in his stomach that rather than being laughed with, he was being laughed at. The waiter returned with the wine and the extra glass. Marlowe uncorked a bottle and filled everyone's glass except for the ones belonging to Kidd and Spencer, as they had both at that very moment passed out. Let us raise our glasses and drink a toast to the first play of William Shakespeare. Remind me again of its title? The Comedy of Errors. Though it is only my first play to be performed, I have written others. Others? Said Richard Burbage, leaning forward, an eyebrow arched. How many others? Some thirty or more. (laughs) Some thirty or more? My ledger stands at little more than half a dozen, yet this prodigy, this fount of invention, this proto-Aeschylus hath written thirty or more. They are all locked away. And I know where. Thy thirty or more plays will I vouchsafe like your play tonight find their stage, but only after thou hast found the time to write them down on parchment. Marlowe placed the tip of his right index finger very gently on Shakespeare's forehead. Until then, thy thirty or more plays are locked away in here. Up until this moment, Shakespeare had found it difficult to maintain eye contact with Marlowe. Most people did, so daunting was the charisma of the man. But now here they were, William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe, sitting opposite each other, staring straight into each other's eyes. It was almost as if they were equals. Come now, Shakespeare, and hold thy hands up to it. Shakespeare looked down at the table for a moment, and when he looked up again, the old diffidence had returned. He smiled and raised his hands in submission. I am found out. Thou hast caught me on the hip. He downed the rest of his wine in one gulp and then tapped his forehead. My thirty or more plays are all locked in here. I knew it. Regarding your play this afternoon, Master Shakespeare... What of it, Master Burbage? I did intuit, in its form and content, some knowledge on thy part of the classic canon, most notably of Plautus. I intuited that too, which would suggest that thou hast attained some higher learning. I surmise that we are roughly alike in age, but I confess to no remembrance of you from Cambridge. Were you at Oxford then? No, neither Oxford nor... Cambridge. Edward Alleyne seemed puzzled. Neither Oxford nor Cambridge, but where else is there? Stratford upon Avon. Stratford upon Avon. Said Burbage with a quite definite note of amused surprise in his voice. Yes. There's a University of Stratford upon Avon. I went to grammar school at Stratford upon Avon, and after grammar school at Stratford upon Avon, you then went to this University of Stratford upon Avon. There is no University of Stratford upon Avon, Master Marlowe. I did not go to university. <laughs> what? You didn't go to university? No. There was an awkward silence. Marlowe went to say something else, but Burbage restrained him with a light touch on the arm. Shakespeare's educational deficiency was something about which he was obviously a tad sensitive. The tension was broken by the arrival of a new face at the table, and a very ugly one it was too. It had a scar running down one side and belonged to a thoroughgoing scoundrel called Robert Ah, Poli, there you are. You're late. Pardon, Master Marlow, but I was in Cockfosters doing some business with a walloon. I don't care if you were in Timbuktu playing Skittles with the Queen of Sheba. You're still late. "'Do you have my goods?' "'I have!' "'Pooley took a small leather pouch from his pocket. "'Well, hand it over.' "'No, sir, I must have payment first. "'You must, you must, you pox-scarred son of a whore. "'I'll pay you when it is my wont to pay you. "'Now give me my goods.' "'Tis not I, but my master that makes this demand of thee.' "'Marlow rose from his chair and advanced towards Pooley. "'Oh, does he now? "'He makes demands. "'Well, I'll make a demand of him.' You go tell your master that I demand that he comes hither and kisses my ass, and here's a boot for thine! Marlowe snatched the leather pouch out of Polly's hand, kicked him up the backside, and then threw him out the door, but not before seizing an empty bottle from the table and smashing it across Polly's head. Marlowe may have been the greatest writer in the whole wide world, but he was also a complete thug. He tossed the leather pouch to Edward Alleen. Do the honours, Kaz. Marlowe sat back down at the table and poured himself another drink, while the waiter busied himself sweeping up the broken glass and mopping up the blood. Edward Aline opened the leather pouch and had a good long sniff of its contents. Well? Edward Aline lifted his nose out of the leather pouch and smiled. Tis the good stuff. Ha 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 ha. Edward Elaine produced a small clay pipe from his pocket. He took from the leather pouch a large pinch of desiccated brown leaves, stuffed them into the bowl and then lit the pipe off a candle. Shakespeare watched all this with a mixture of horror, fascination and a little bit of intense excitement, for he had guessed what the desiccated brown leaves must be. Is that... Marlowe whispered the word that Shakespeare could not bring himself to utter. Tobacco. Yes, it is... The Noxious Weed. Edward Alain took a big drag on the pipe, likewise Burbage, and also Marlowe when it was passed on to him. Marlowe then offered the pipe to Shakespeare. Want some? Shakespeare hesitated for a second and then took the pipe. It was a temptation he could not resist. He put the stem of the pipe to his lips. Draw the fumes deep into thy lungs. Shakespeare followed Marlowe's instructions. He inhaled, and the sickly sweet fumes went deeper. And deeper, and deeper, and deeper, and deeper, and deeper. Down, 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 the down, 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 matter down, 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 down. The heaving dance floor now, the music so loud, 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 green sleeves speed it up so fast, fast, fast. Arms in the air like a windmill in a hurricane, must sit down, smoke down, catch bread, smoke more tobacco. Everyone's talking, no one's listening, they're just trading noise. The a pretty girl, she's so pretty, almost as pretty as gorgeous. Podding Rogers, starving. Three more bottles of reddish. What do you do? I write plays, my name is... Never heard of you. What plays have you written? Yeah. Oh, look, it's Christopher Marlowe, the greatest writer on the whole wide world. And Edward Alain. We'll keep all the on smoke water battle. A revelation of your world is about the <laughs> A revelation, the old world is a revelation. The old world a revelation. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come a come on, the on, I i but it wasn't that funny. Three more bottles of Lennox. When Shakespeare regained consciousness, he found that he was sprawled on a big cushion on the floor of the VIP area. Marlowe and Edward Alleyne were still sitting at the table, chatting quietly to each other. But Burbage was gone, and Kidd and Spencer were nowhere to be seen either. They were probably lying in a ditch somewhere. The guitar player was still there also, and was still playing Green Sleeves. There was only one other person in the room, an old crone, sitting all alone at a small table over at the other end of the room. She was shuffling cards and mumbling to herself. Had she been sitting there all night? If she had, then why hadn't Shakespeare noticed her earlier? "'Who is that old crone?' "'Shakespeare, you're alive!' "'We feared you may have succumbed.' "'Who is that old crone?' "'What old crone?' "'The one that's sitting yonder, shuffling cards and mumbling to herself.' "'Oh, that old crone! "'She is the widow Grimshaw. "'Cross her palm with silver and she will tell thee thy fortune.' "'You mean she's a witch?' (laughs) "'She is no witch. "'There are no witches.' likewise there are no angels nor demons no heaven nor hell and so it doth follow there is no devil and there is no god or wolf men come to mention it take care christopher lest thy blasphemy cost thee thy head better no head than one stuffed full of superstition she tells fortunes some adulpated fools may be gulled by the ancient baggage's mystical prognostications but the widow Grimshaw is naught but a peddler of delusions. Shakespeare slid off the big cushion and clambered to his feet. If thou art desirous of taking a piss, Master Shakespeare, there is over there in the corner, for that very purpose, a bucket. I am not desirous of taking a piss, Master Alane. I am desirous of having my fortune told. As Shakespeare wobbled unsteadily across the room towards the widow Grimshaw, Marlowe turned to Edward Alane, a mischievous grin upon his face. Come, Edward, let's have some sport. <laughs> What is it you wish of the widow Grimshaw? Shakespeare had sat himself down opposite the widow Grimshaw. Marlowe and Edward Alain were standing behind him, drinks in hand and up for some larks. Shakespeare took a deep breath. I wish of the widow Grimthorpe. Grimshaw. Beg pardon, ma'am. I wish of the widow Grimshaw that she tells me my fortune. Firstly, you must cross my palm with silver. Marlowe nudged Edward Elaine in the ribs. Here we go. Shakespeare placed a coin in the widow Grimshaw's hand. She raised an eyebrow. Shakespeare took the hint and placed another coin in her hand. Sufficiently remunerated, the widow Grimshaw lowered her eyebrow, pocketed the coins, then dealt the cards. And weird-looking cards they were too, with pictures on them of demons and skeletons and men hanged upside down and other sinister whatnots. The widow Grimshaw scrutinised the cards for a few seconds and then intoned solemnly, "'The cards tell me you are not from London.'" "'Goodness gracious!' gasped Marlowe theatrically. "'How did the cards know that?' "'I have come to London to find fame and riches.' The widow Grimshaw smiled indulgently at this sweet, innocent, apple-cheeked, rather sozzled country boy, and then studied the cards a little more. "'Ah, yes. I see now that the cards are telling me you are from... Coventry, "'Stratford-upon-Avon.' "'Close enough. She's very good, isn't she, Edward?' The widow Grimshaw ignored Marlowe and dealt another couple of cards, but then her entire demeanour suddenly changed, a deep frown creasing her forehead. I have never seen the like. I I I have never seen the like. Is there something amiss? The widow Grimshaw didn't answer. She clutched her stomach and started rocking backwards and forwards in her chair. I I have never seen the like. I I have never seen the like. Methinks the old trout has got a bad case of the wind. This cheeky quip made Edward Alleyne laugh so much that he snorted wine down his nose. The widow Grimshaw looked up from the cards and stared wide-eyed at Shakespeare. Princes, kings, emperors... Princes, kings, emperors, princes, kings, emperors, what of them? Thou shalt be exalted above them all. What wilt be wrought by thee in this life shall resound through the centuries without number that are yet to come. The muses hath anointed thy brow, and in the pantheon of the immortals the ruler's throne is reserved for thee. William Shakespeare. There was a long, long pause as the three men took in this portentous pronouncement. Eventually, Marlowe said, Oh, um, it appears that fame and riches shall be thine, Shakespeare. Well, fame at least. Now let us see what the future holds for me. Marlow bundled Shakespeare out of the chair and sat down. To save time, my name is Christopher Marlowe, I am already exceedingly famous, and moreover, I am also filthy rich. Oh, and I'm from Canterbury, in case you hadn't guessed. He took out some loose change and slapped it on the table. There's your silver, so deal the cards, old woman, though we shall doubtless just hear more of the same overblown flimflam, the pantheon of the immortals, indeed. The widow Grimshaw shuffled the cards and dealt a new hand. She looked at the cards for a few moments then, Started to snigger. What's so funny? Christopher Marlowe, <laughs> thou hast written thy last play. No, I have just written my latest play. Yes. No, thou hast written thy last play. And thou, old woman, hast a most vexatious habit of repeating thyself. I have not written my last play, I have just written my latest play. It is entitled The Massacre at Paris, and it is, by popular acclaim, wondrous. Is that not so, Shakespeare? But Shakespeare wasn't listening. He was leaning against the wall, his hand to his forehead. Perhaps he was having another of his headaches. And it is thy last play. The widow Grimshaw insisted once more. She evidently had nothing more to add to this, for she rose from her chair, quickly gathered up her stuff, and said, The hour is late, and I needs must hie me home. I bid you, gentlemen, good night. And with a final admiring glance at Shakespeare and a sly little smirk directed at Marlowe, she was out to the door. And a good night to you too, witch! Shakespeare walked unsteadily into the centre of the room. He was white as a sheet. When he spoke, it was more to himself, as if in a daze. She knew my name. I did not tell her it. Therefore, how did she know it? She has ears, has she not? She must have heard us speak your name in conversation. Shakespeare, art thou unwell? Thy face is ashen. I am a little out of humour, I do admit, but twill pass. Shakespeare suddenly clasped his hand to his mouth, rushed over to the corner, stuck his head in the piss bucket, and then proceeded, in the most spectacular fashion, to heave his guts up.) <laughs> Edward Alain cleared his throat and enunciated in his beautifully modulated actor's voice, What will be wrought by him in this life shall resound through the centuries without number yet to come. To which Marlowe responded, Well, the noise of his copious vomiting certainly shall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good, yes, very good. <laughs> Shakespeare passed out once again, but Marlowe and Edward Alain slapped him awake just long enough to elicit from him his address. He was renting a room in the top floor of a house near the Church of St. Helens in Bishopsgate. It was impossible to find a boatman to take them back across the river at that time of night, but by a stroke of luck they managed to catch a lift on a barge, taking piss to the tannery at Blackfriars, with the proviso that if Shakespeare was sick on the deck, then all three of them would have to get out and swim. Though the river was so thickly clogged with all kinds of disgusting garbage, rotting vegetables, raw sewage, dead dogs, dead cats, the occasional dead human being that they could quite as easily have got out of the barge and walked. Once they eventually got to Shakespeare's place, Marlowe and Edward Alleyne manhandled the unconscious Shakespeare up the stairs. The door to his lodgings was unlocked, so they let themselves in and dumped him on a chair. I'll see him to his bed, Edward. Good night, Christopher. Good night, Edward. Exit Edward Alleyne. It was a neat and tidy little garret. Marlowe could tell from the plain yet well-made furniture, the linen bedsheets and the porcelain washbasin and jug, that notwithstanding his threadbare attire, Shakespeare's family background was probably lower middle class, or whatever passed for it in the regions. There was one highly unusual object in the room, though, lying on top of the writing desk. A soul. Skull. It had a hole bored in the top and was being used as a quill holder. How very macabre. Marlowe took off Shakespeare's boots and his tunic, then dragged him over to the bed and lay him down on top of it. He pulled Shakespeare's puke covered shirt up and over his head, but while doing so, the shirt snagged on a silver chain around Shakespeare's neck, causing it to come off and fall to the floor. Marlowe saw that it had a small golden key attached to it, and as he bent down to pick it up, he also saw under the bed a wooden chest. He looked at the key, he looked at the chest and then he looked at the key again. I wonder. He dragged the wooden chest out from under the bed and into the centre of the room. He put the small golden key in the lock and turned it. There was a tiny click and the wooden chest opened. It was full of bound manuscripts, some thirty or more. The manuscript on top of the pile had written on its cover, Henry VI, Part two, a play by William Shakespeare. Another manuscript was entitled, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Another was The Taming of the Shrew. Another was Titus Andronicus. Marlowe looked through them all, and each one of them was a play by William Shakespeare. Well, 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 so thy thirty or more plays were locked away. In here. Marlowe pulled the chair over. He sat down and started to read through the manuscripts, beginning with King Lear. Two hours later and Marlowe was still sitting on the chair. The pile of manuscripts lay on the floor beside him. Shakespeare was still sound asleep. Marlow had only skimmed through the plays, a soliloquy here, a snatch of a scene there, but he had read enough to gauge their worth, which was priceless. One passage he took time to analyse carefully was the chorus prologue to Henry V which begins Oh for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention. Marlowe was astounded. Shakespeare was beginning the play with a speech decrying the very form in which the play was written. Marlowe himself felt frustrated by the constraints of the stage for sure but his effort to break free of them the massacre at Paris was compared to just this one brilliant speech so much crude bombast. Shakespeare seemed to be heralded a completely new and as yet unnamed way of storytelling that would transcend theatre itself. But Marlow's elation was in short order, subsumed by a crushing self-pity. He put his head in his hands and started to weep, not so loud as to awaken Shakespeare, but still his sobbing was profound. He dried his eyes and looked at the small golden key clasped in his hand. What treasures hath this golden key unlocked? They have enriched my heart, but left... Desolate my soul. I mocked thee, Shakespeare, and in jest I called thee Proto-Aeschylus. Yet Aeschylus, Aristophanes, Euripides, and all the Greeks, and Horace, Ovid, Virgil, and all the Romans too, and yea, all others who have and will come after them must genuflect before thee. As must I. Marlowe put the manuscripts back in the wooden chest. He locked it, pushed it back under the bed, and then very, very carefully put the silver chain with the golden key back around Shakespeare's neck. He stood at the foot of the bed and looked down on Shakespeare, who had started to snore, with drool dribbling from the side of his mouth. There he lies, he who shall vault, Christopher Marlowe, this untutored yokel this rustic dolt this moon-faced bumpkin and yet like the moon he shall eclipse me Marlowe trudged towards the door his world and everything he believed about himself in ruins there was a mirror hanging on the wall next to the door He caught sight of his reflection and smiled ruefully at himself. (laughs) Well, Christopher, it seems the old witch spoke truly after all. And then he remembered her other prophecy. Christopher Marlowe, thou hast written thy last play. My last play. What meant she by that? Marl was only 29 years old, but the face that looked back at him from the mirror suddenly looked like the face of a man immeasurably older. It looked like the skull on the writing desk. It looked like a death mask. The End of Episode 2 of The Heretic's Forfeit